And let me read Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Do you have a right to be angry? That's the question of Jonah chapter 4. It's there in verse 4. The Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? And again in verse 9, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? That, that question punctuates this passage. And, and really, I think that question leads us to the central message of Jonah not only chapter 4, but of the whole book. It's, it's sort of like if you can follow that question down, you'll get to what this book is all about. And uh, Jonah was mad. Wow, he was mad. He was super-duper ticked off. I mean, he was spitting mad. He was like so mad he wanted to die. You know, I mean, have you ever been that mad? Just like out of your mind, like, ah, just shoot me, you know, kind of mad. That's how mad he was. And it's a kind of funny reaction because, you know, if, if you trace the story of Jonah over the chapters, there are other emotions that Jonah could have conceivably had at this point in the story. You know, Jonah chapter 1, just to review Jonah here. Jonah flees God's call and he goes west into the Mediterranean Ocean and a huge storm is sent by God that almost breaks up the ship. And it would have been easy for Jonah to be filled with awe and wonder rather than rage. I mean, wow, look how powerful God is. He found me out in the ocean. Even the sailors on the ship are filled with awe and wonder at God. And then Jonah chapter 2, Jonah's thrown overboard. God saves him miraculously with this big fish. 
And, and Jonah's filled with thanksgiving. Psalm cha- or, uh, Jonah chapter 2 is a psalm of thanksgiving where he's praising God for his rescue. Or Jonah chapter 3, which Seth preached on last Sunday. You know, Jonah goes into Nineveh to preach judgment. Day one of his preaching tour, everybody in the city repents. I mean, it's like a preacher's wildest dream come true. To not even finish your sermon and have everybody be like, you're right, we repent. Like, wow, you know? And so I can see a lot of different emotions that Jonah could have conceivably had at this point in this story. He, he could have been awed or thankful or praising God or, or pleased, but instead, oh, he's mad. He's so mad. He's super mad at, at God. He's greatly displeased and angry. And God says, do you have a right to be angry? Which is kind of a funny question. I think it may be perhaps for our modern ears because we live in this kind of therapeutic society where, where all of our emotions are okay. Where emotions are, emotions are neutral. Whatever you feel is fine. That's how you feel. And feelings are good, no matter what they are. And, and here's God saying, uh, do you have a right to that emotion? Like, what do you mean do I have a right to my emotions? I can feel whatever I want to feel. Do you have a right to feel that way? It's, it's kind of a strange question. Jonah, do you have a right to be as angry as you are? And so that's the question that confronts us. Does Jonah and do we have a right to be angry? But to answer that question well, to really get at that question, I kind of feel like there's a question we have to ask before that. There's, there's a little bit of stage setting. Uh, and, and if you answer the first question, you'll be able to answer the second question, which is, uh, do you have a right to be angry? And I think the first question to ask is, why was Jonah so angry? I mean, you don't know if you have a right to be angry until you find out, well, why were you mad? Maybe he does have a right to be mad because of what he's mad about, or maybe he doesn't. So I I, I kind of want to go back one step and ask the first question of why is Jonah so mad? And that's so important for getting a grasp of the overall message of this book. So so there he is, verse 1 of chapter 4. He's so mad. He was greatly displeased. Um, He became angry. And we say, why was he so angry? Well, it's right there in the context. Look at the verse right before it, chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, that's the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Therefore, verse 4, Jonah was greatly displeased. So Jonah's mad because the Ninevites heard his warnings of judgment and they all said, you're right, we repent. God, don't kill us. Don't nuke us, God. And God doesn't. And Jonah's mad that Nineveh didn't get nuked. And if that's obscure at all, look at verse 2. Look at what comes after the anger. Jonah explains why he's so mad. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, bounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Do you see that? He's like, way, way back, God. Let's go back, God. Way back to chapter 1. You first told me to go to Nineveh, and I said, I I don't want to go, and I ran away. The reason I ran away is because I was worried that this exactly was going to happen. You know? You, You know, you said... 
Nineveh's wickedness has come up before me, and you are going to send judgment on Nineveh. And you know what, God? That's what Nineveh deserves. And by the way, that is what Nineveh deserved. Okay, I, I, I want to make this clear. I've tried to emphasize this as we've been going through Jonah. The message of the book of Jonah is not you're okay, I'm okay, and God never judges anybody. If, if that's what you think Jonah's about, you've missed the book. No, 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 no. Nineveh was not okay. They were idolatrous people who worshipped false gods and were very oppressive and violent. Nineveh should have been wiped off the map if God was just going to go based on what people deserve. It's very clear in the story that God's judgment was real, that Nineveh was just like right on the line and God was about to push him over. It's very clear. The thing is, Jonah wanted God to do it. (laughs) And and so Jonah's like, okay, I know this is going to happen, God. I'm going to go to Nineveh. I'm going to tell them to repent because the the judgment's coming, and they probably won't, but there's a little chance. There's like a a 0.1% chance that Nineveh might repent and I know, God, that if you, if you hear them repent, I just know you, and I know what you're going to do. You're going to let them off the hook. And so just so that that 0.1% chance scenario doesn't play out, I'm going and I'm running because Nineveh should get nuked. They shouldn't have one last chance to turn back to you. And so then that's exactly what happens. And now Jonah's like, you know, see, I told you so. You never listened to me. You know, kind of a a response to God. And he's so angry at God because God has let Nineveh be spared. And now he says, just take away my life. I want to die. And God hits him with that question. Have you any right to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry that I have extended mercy and grace to a very evil people who have repented. Is, can't I do that? Do you have a right to be mad at me for doing that, Jonah? It's a real warning uh, to us, I think, as religious people, because I think this kind of Jonah mentality is easy for religious people like me to fall into. You know, Jonah was, uh, Jonah was like the Pharisees in the New Testament. You turn to the pages of the New Testament, and they're the Pharisees. They're the, they're the ones in Jonah's place. They're the ones who are following God and trying to keep the rules. And then here comes Jesus, and where does Jesus go? He goes and hangs out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all the really bad people. And the Pharisees are like, what? You know, why are you doing? They're bad. Why are you with bad people? We're the ones who are trying to follow God. If you're the Messiah of Israel, why are you with them instead of with us? It doesn't make any sense. And notice how Jesus uh, uh, explains it. I mean, in fact, do this. Put a bookmark here in Jonah if you don't mind, and go back to the passage Seth read earlier, Luke chapter 15, on page 1035. So we'll come back to Jonah, but let's just look a little more closely at Luke 15. Why did Jesus tell the parable of the prodigal son, the famous, one of the famous parables in the Bible? Chokes me up every time I hear it. It's a beautiful parable. Why did he tell it, though? Well, to understand the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 11, you've got to go back to Luke 15, verse 1. Here's, here's what was happening that caused Jesus to tell the parable. If you look at verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, so that's it. You know, Jonah's attitude was like the Pharisees, or maybe the Pharisees were like Jonah. 
They, they just didn't understand why God would be giving another chance and reaching out to the people that everybody knew were the bad people. It just did not make any sense. Interestingly, that's also, I think, why Jesus tells the parable of the, the prodigal son or the two sons this Seth read. You know, you got the father and you got the two sons. You got the really bad son, and he's like, just give me my half of the estate. I don't, you know, I mean, you usually don't get the estate till the dad dies, right? But he's like, yeah, I'll take it now, thanks. <laughs> okay, what am I, you know? So he gives him his half of the estate. He goes off. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and all the money is squandered on ter- riotous living. He wastes it on parting or whatever he's doing. And then he comes back, and he's like, Dad, I'm sorry. And the father, the father forgives him and is so happy that his son is saved. You know, the, 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 that son is like the Ninevites. He's like the really bad guy who's breaking God's laws, and he repents. And just like the Ninevites, God has mercy and forgives after he repents. But then there's the older brother. The older brother is the Pharisees. The older brother is Jonah. The older brother is how we religious people can be. Because, you know, look at verse 25 again. The older brother was out in the field. He comes to the house. He hears music and dancing. He's like, what's going on? And the servant, verse 27, says, your brother's come. And your father killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. You know, dad popped the, you know, uh, bottle of champagne that he's been saving for a special occasion. You know, know, he brought out, like, he brought that out. Yeah, they got the fine china out. They got the fine china out. The fatted calf, like, what? Verse 28, the older brother became angry, just like Jonah. He refused to go in, and so the father went out and pleaded with him. That's Jonah. He's angry that God would have mercy on this bad brother who's really done some terrible things and dishonored the family and squandered the family estate. I mean, there's a, you know, from the older brother's perspective, there's a reason he's mad at the younger brother. Again, the message of the prodigal son is not, is not, you're okay and I'm okay and we're all fine. No, no, this was a, he did bad things. But there's the grace and mercy of the father upon the repentant younger brother. And it shows the heart of God toward those who are repentant. And so that's where we find Jonah in the same place. I was uh, having coffee with uh, some guys a couple weeks ago and, and uh, somehow we, we, were talk, we were just talking about the Lord and our faith and and uh, we got onto the topic of self-righteousness and just what a, a persistent temptation that is for us as Christians to be self-righteous, to be sort of spiritually stuck up, you know? As it's like, I, I, I used to do all those bad things that everyone else did, and then God reaches down and grabs me and hauls me out and saves me and cleans me up and like six months later, I'm looking down my nose at the people who are doing the things that I was just doing six months earlier. I mean, it's like, you know, you get rid of, you know, partying, you get rid of other sins, and the next, and it's like, great, now I can be self-righteous. I have a replacement sin, you know? And now I go, huh, how could they do that? Like, well, I was doing that for 20 years. But all of a sudden, I think, boom, they should be right where I am, even though it I, God worked with me patiently for 20 years to bring me there, but they should be there now because I'm here now kind of a thing. It's just, it's so insidious, self-righteousness. This idea that, yeah, grace is for me, but it's not for them. And, and very quickly, we start to see people beyond God's grace, people we don't want to see rescued by God. It's the spirit of 
Jonah. It's the spirit of the Pharisees, the spirit of the older brother and of us. And, and it's just so ironic, you know, this, this disconnect that's in our souls. You know, you go back to Jonah chapter 4, there's this, this ironic disconnect because Jonah knows who God is, right? He says it in verse 2. You're the gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. That's actually, Seth said this last Sunday, but that's like a creed that, that all of the Israelites knew. It, it was like, you know, like saying the Pledge of Allegiance, if you grew up here in this country. You know, we all just know the Pledge of Allegiance. Like, you know, I, I can just say it in my sleep. It, it, you know, I've said it so many times as a kid. It's like the, the Bible verse, John 3.16. How many of you who've lived around the church a lot have memorized John 3.16? You know, I mean, for those of you who know it, just say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That was good. I mean, I heard the KJV versus the NIV, but <laughs> we all got the same point. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? That's how this was. You're a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, God who relents from sin and calamity. It's just part of the creed. But it's amazing how he knew that. Like he has the theology down cold, but his heart is disconnected from the truth he knows about God. It, and it's the same way. We can be the same way. We can be like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, da, 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 and not love the world. You know? He sent his only son that whoever believes, except that guy, you know, or that guy. You know? Oh, wait, well, not those type of people. So there can be a disconnect between the truth we know about God, we can have our theology right, and our hearts can be all wrong. We can believe one thing with our minds and affirm it on it as a doctrinal statement or as a part of our creed, and yet our hearts can be totally disconnected from what we know is true. He knew God was compassionate and gracious, and yet his heart was just hard and closed and angry, and so he's angry at God. Because of this disconnect. So angry at God. And God asks him the question, do you have a right to be angry? Because ultimately, what Jonah is doing, and it does, you know, if we have to be honest, what Jonah was doing was he was judging God. He was assessing God's performance at being the sovereign Lord. Like, uh, you shouldn't do that. Nineveh should be nuked, right? God, you, you've you kind of lost. You're pretty good most of the time, but you're kind of off on this one. Definitely nuke Nineveh. Don't spare Nineveh. And so he's really sitting in judgment of God and, and the way God is running God's universe, right? And he's mad at God because God seems to be uh, turning a blind eye to really bad people who've done really bad things. And God says, do you have a right to be angry? Do, do I have a right to sit in judgment of God? Can't God, if, he, if God wants to show the glory of his judgment, can't God judge? And if God wants to show the glory of his mercy and compassion, can't God save? Can't God have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and harden whom he wants to harden? I mean, if God wants to display that aspect of his glory, his compassion, and show how great he is in his love and mercy by saving the Ninevites, he could do that. Who is Jonah or who is anybody to tell God how to be? Jonah, you don't have a right to be angry, especially someone that God has shown you so much grace, Jonah. He's shown you so much grace. Remember you were drowning in the fish? Remember? 
No, you don't, huh? You already forgot that. So, okay, I get it. You're happy if, if grace is for you, you just don't want it for others. You're happy if the fish saves you, you just don't want the fish to save Ninevites. Like, ah, Jonah. It, it's totally uh, messed up, this disconnect between theology and his heart. But I love the fact that God is so patient with Jonah, don't you? I mean, this, that's what's encouraging here, is that even Jonah, even though Jonah is acting like a, a spoiled brat, even though he has no heart, even though he's hardened and angry, God, I mean, God could have done anything at that point. He could have gone like lightning bolt on Jonah, bzz, you know, paddled him. I mean, whatever. He could have done whatever he wanted. Jonah's kind of a toddler here. And throwing a temper tantrum. God could have done anything, but instead, God just kind of works with Jonah. He's so patient. He's like, okay, okay, okay. You have any right to be angry? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Well, let's try something else. All right. And so God does this big object lesson. That's what verses 5 through 9 are, is this object lesson. I call this the object lesson of the weed, the worm, and the wind. The weed, the worm, and the wind. And, and now God is going to try to break it down for Jonah. He's going to try to help Jonah see the absurdity of Jonah's attitude. Rather than just kind of screaming at Jonah or zapping Jonah, he's going to try to reason with Jonah kind of like the father does in the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to reason with you. No, 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 son, let me try to explain it to you. And so God is so gentle, and he's just going to to explain this to Jonah. And so we have have this this funny object lesson. It starts out in verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So he's still like, I don't care. We're just going to wait and see. We'll see if God smartens up and sees things my way. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to see. You know? he's making, it's like he's making a little test for God. Do you ever do that when, you get, when you're really ticked off? You make tests for people. People don't know they're being tested. But you have a little test. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send an email. And if they don't reply in three, no, two days then I know that everything I think about them being a jerk is true and that I'm right to do whatever I want to do. Because it proves that they're mean and they're bad because they failed my test. Do they know you're you're testing them? No. But we just make these little tests. And when you find yourself making little tests in your mind for other people to sort of justify the kind of jerk you want to be, well, I'm justified in being a jerk because they failed my jerk test. Right? It's what we... I'm glad other people do this too. <laughs> and so Jonah has come up with a test. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch. And I'm going to see if God follows through on, on this promise. He should nuke them. Maybe God will come to his senses. And that's when God does his little object lesson. God has a lesson for Jonah. And the first thing he does is he sends the vine, verse 6. The weed. The Lord provides a vine and it grows up over Jonah and gives him shade to ease his discomfort. And Jonah's very happy. All of a sudden, Jonah's happy. He's just like, I'm so mad, I want to die. I'm happy. You know, ooh, vine. Oh, that's better. Okay. I'm comfortable. I'm saved. I'm rescued from my discomfort. Ah, I'm happy. Right? In fact, this is really, I think there's sarcasm going on here. Do you see the, the phrase there? Give shade to ease his discomfort. That word discomfort in Hebrew is 
the, the word ra'ah, which means like disaster, calamity, evil, bad thing. And, and it's been used previously in the book of Jonah to describe God's terrible judgment. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 7, when God sends the storm on the ship where Jonah is hiding, and the storm is breaking up the ship, and everybody is possibly going to die because of God's judgment coming on this ship, the sailors say in verse 7, come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this ra'ah, this calamity, this disaster. We're going to die. You see it again in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the ra'ah He had threatened, the destruction. So it's like big, bad destruction. That's what that word means. It's a terrible thing. But then you get to Jonah, chapter 4, verse 6, and Jonah was happy for the shade to ease his ra'ah because he had sun beating down on his head, and it was uncomfortable, you know? Oh, thank goodness that vine came. My calamity is taken care of. I, I just kind of wonder if there's a sort of sarcastic tone there to just show us the small-minded, selfish, narrow little world that Jonah inhabits where he's happy as long as, as grace is happening to him, but he's mad if that grace is taken away or if it's shown to someone else who he deems isn't worthy of that grace. It, it's a very tiny little grace. It's out of sync with God's big missionary heart and God's big grace. It's, it's just very selfish and self-absorbed. It's, it's pathetic. And it's like me. I can be like this. But then the next day comes the worm. So we have the weed, then the worm. Verse 7, at dawn the next day, God provides a worm. It chews the vine so it withers. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Uh, people who, who live in uh, the land of Israel and in, in the Arabian Peninsula, they fear this east wind because it comes off the, the desert and it just can wither plants in a couple days. It's like living with an oven door open, you know, and it's just kind of blowing on you. And so now he's miserable again, and the sun is now blazing down on his head, and he's growing faint, and now he's back to angry. He wants to die. He says, it would be better for me to die than to live. And, and I, just, I see ourselves there. It's like as long as I'm being blessed, as long as I have my little vine, I'm happy. I don't really care about anyone else, but as long as I have my thing. And if God takes away my little things, then I'm like, how could you, God? I'm having a crisis of faith because God took away my little happiness thing that was good for me. And, you know, we're not concerned about his glory or the bigger pictures. It's just kind of my personal comfort is really what it comes down to. And so Jonah is exposed. His small-heartedness and my small-heartedness are exposed in this. And there's God's big, gracious heart to have mercy and compassion upon Nineveh. And Jonah is so upset. And so God asked Jonah, verse 9, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. Well, at least he's honest. But that's when God springs his trap. Verses 10 and 11, now God is going to take the object lesson and drive it home. He's going to take that, that experience of the weed, the worm, and the wind, and he's going to spring the trap and, and show the absurdity of Jonah's position and to show why he's doing what he's doing. So it says in verse 10, the Lord said, you've been concerned 
The, the Hebrew word there, I think, could even be translated, you have compassion upon, you have pity for, you could translate it, you feel sorry for, you want to see saved the vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And you have compassion and concern, and you want the vine to be saved. You don't want the vine to be destroyed. You don't want calamity to come upon the vine. You love the vine. And now this is when God just flips it. He says, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned? Should I not have pity? Should I not have compassion about that great city? It's like, you, you're mad that the vine died. You, you, you know, you're like, for God so loved the vine kind of a person. You, you want God's grace upon the plant because it's helping you. But you don't care about mercy and compassion upon 120,000 people. Like, you don't care about that. You know, they don't know their right from their left. They're clueless. They're not guiltless, but they are clueless. You know? And uh, God's like, shouldn't I have some mercy on them? You, so so you, you want the plant saved, but you want the people nuked. And you're mad when the, the plant dies, but you're happy, uh, or you're mad when the plant dies, and you're mad when the people are saved. Like, it's just backwards. And then I, I love the cattle. You know, you got to throw those in. Hey, what about the cows? <laughs> Since you don't care about people, how about cows? You know, they're at least higher on the food chain than plants. I think it's just, again, it's just showing the absurdity of Jonah's position. Like, Jonah, Jonah, your heart is so out of whack with the great and broad missionary heart of our God who longs to have mercy and compassion on a people and to save. That's who he is. It's, he's holy, he's a judge, yes, but he's also compassionate and gracious. And then, boop, the story ends. And when stories end that abruptly, the, the, one of the effects it has upon the reader is it kind of throws it in your lap, doesn't it? That's, you know, and then you're like, well, well, then what happened? And then, you know, it's almost like the author's like, yeah, then what happens? Hmm? Like, what are you going to do with this? It, it's a, it, it seems like sort of an authorial device to throw the story back to us. Because remember, the book of Jonah is not really just kind of like Jonah's personal diary, but it was written for who? For Israel. This was written to be read by the Israelites. And this was written to challenge them. Presumably, Jonah got the point, which is why he wrote this down and gave it to Israel. But, but, but you know, now it's, it's really for the people of Israel to say, hey, Israel, is your view of God's grace and compassion limited to Israel? Or, or do you have a bigger heart for the nations? You know, God originally created Israel to be a light to the nations. God promised to Abraham, through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. I mean, even before Israel became Israel, God was telling Abraham that he was positioning this whole thing to originally bring a blessing to the nations. And, and so Israel has lost sight of that. God is challenging Israel to see the bigger picture of his compassion, even for the Ninevites. And if that is true of Israel, I mean, how much more is that true of us? Because we're, we're like the next step in the story of Revelation, uh, of the revelation of God's will. We're in the church 
You know, they, they had the promise of Abraham to see all the nations blessed. We have Jesus Christ who died and, and was buried and rose for the salvation of all who believe in Him. We have Jesus who told us to go to all the nations. Christ told us to go. I mean, you know, it's like, well, Jonah, yeah, he got told to go to Nineveh. We have it even bigger. Jesus told all the disciples to go to all the nations, and that's us. Wow. And so if, if this was true for Israel to have a heart aligned with God's heart of mercy and compassion upon the nations, how much more should we who have Jesus Christ and His salvation clearly laid out and the command from Christ to go into all the world be willing to go? But to do it, we have to first deal with the Jonah spirit in our own souls. Before you, you can go out and bring the gospel to the nations, You've got to make sure that your heart isn't clogged up with that, well, not those people. You know, you, you, you read about things happening around the world. Egypt is, is in turmoil again. Syria is in a civil war. Just terrible things, you know, always terrible things happening in the world. And it's easy to think, oh, those people. I wouldn't want to go there. I mean, those people, you know, they've got problems. They must be different from us. And, you know, well, how's the gospel going to get to them if, if we kind of write certain people off as beyond God's, oh, they're just, they're kind of getting what they deserve with all their crazy beliefs and the way they do things over there, wherever there is. But, but what about God's mercy to them? What about God's mercy to Nineveh? What about God's mercy to me? And so the missionary impulse has to first get the Jonah spirit taken out of the way before we'll even make sense to go to another country that's a hard, faraway place. But before we even get to another country, how about just people right in our own lives that we have kind of already written off as beyond the grace of God? Uh, Bill Hybels uh, is a pastor of Willow Creek Community Church. He wrote a book on evangelism, and uh, the title of the book's provocative. It's Just Walk Across the Room. That's the title of the book. Hey, you know, you kind of get what the book's about, right? That, that one of the big impediments to us sharing the gospel with people is that we just don't take action. Like, we know the gospel, we know the truth, but it's like some point I've got to, like, walk across the room and actually engage somebody and just be a regular human being making conversation with the person. So, you know, it's a simple idea for a book. And the reason Heibel's got the idea for the book, as he tells the story, is that he met he met a, a guy who had grown up uh, as a Muslim, but then had become a Christian. And when Bill met him, he was fascinated by that. He's like, how did you grow up in Islam and then come to Christianity? That's a, that's a pretty big change. And the guy said, uh, well, basically, a Christian walked across the room and started talking to me. And we actually had so much in common, we hit it off, we became friends, we actually, you know, enjoyed each other, and as we shared our lives, as we shared our interests, as we shared our, our faith and our background, and we talked back and forth, you know, I, you know, he came to see that Jesus was not just a prophet, but that he was the Son of God and the Savior. And, and so that's how it happened. And so that's the whole point of the book. It's like, look across the room, who's the person over there, and like, just get off your duff. And walk across the room, like hi, you know. It's so it's a, kind of a simple idea, a simple book, but but I guess what I want to suggest is I'm the thing that's keeping me from walking across the room isn't anything in the room. 
It's just in my heart. Because if I have already kind of put certain types of people in a category like Jonah beyond the grace of God, or I've, I've put them there, I'm not going to want to bring the gospel to them because I've sort of written them off and my, my heart and my mind is blind to them because I have the spirit of Jonah. And so who is that? I, I guess that's the question. If, if God were to call you, I mean, forget going to another country as a missionary. If God were just to call you to walk across the room, who's the, the person you'd least likely want to walk across the room to? You know, who, who would it be for you? Maybe it is like another religion. Maybe for you there's issues with different religions for whatever reason. Maybe you, you see a woman across the room and she's got like the, like the Muslim headscarf thing going on. Or maybe she's wearing a sari and she has, you know, the red dot. And you're like, oh, you know, that's a Muslim, that's a Hindu. And maybe for whatever reason you're like, I, I can't do that one, you know. Uh, why not? Why not come and just love people and talk to people and look for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. That's all evangelism is. Maybe that person across the room uh, that you don't want to talk to is from a different socioeconomic status. Maybe you just look at the way they're dressed and you're like, wow, that guy's from the rough side of the tracks. Or maybe it's the other way. You look at that guy and you say, wow, he's from, you know, what, you know, what yacht club does he belong to? You know, <laughs> Definitely not my, those people. They Forget them. You know, or forget those lower people, or forget those upper people, or whoever. You know, we put people in, we all do this. What, what if that person on the other side of the room is a flaming liberal Democrat? Or what if they're a staunch Republican? Or what if the person on the other side of the room, like, you know, shoots Bambi and eats it on his grill? Or what if it's a fundamentalist vegan? You know, like... Well, you know, who's that person for, for you that we all have that we're like, oh, yeah, forget them. I mean, we have those people, right? What if the person, what, what, what if it's a same-sex couple that's adopted a child? What if it's a cross-dresser? What if it's an abortion doctor? Would I walk across the room and say Hi. I'm an evangelical, born-again Baptist pastor. <laughs> Let's just see where this goes. Or, or have I already said, like, no, God would never save them, you know? Or have I, have I forgotten that I'm actually the same person as them? I am a hell-bound sinner saved by grace. And yeah, they're on a different path to hell than I am, but we're going to end up in the same place. Okay, you took the abortion you know, doctor route, and I took the selfish suburban guy route, but whatever, we get there the same way, or different ways, but to the same place. Who is that person that you wouldn't want to go across the room with and and share the love of Christ? Or maybe, maybe that's even too far. Maybe we've got to break it down even smaller. Maybe we need to walk across this room to somebody in this room. You know, forget going out there to save the world if we in the family of God can't extend mercy and grace to each other. It starts here. And we're the, we're the, the forgiven, chosen, holy ones, right? <laughs> right? That's what Scripture says about believers. We're people who've been saved by grace. But, but if we can't at least here, like, work on our relationships... And, and extend grace to each other, like, 
How are we going to do that going out there into the world? And so it it even just starts here in in the church, extending forgiveness to the people who've already been forgiven by God. let's, Let's do the easy one first. Is God calling you to walk across this room? You know, here we are in one service. We can't hide from each other anymore. We're all together. We have to deal with each other. We can't avoid that group because they like that kind of praise music, or I'm in this service because they like that kind. Sorry, we're all on the road trip together in the same car. We're one family, which means we need to deal with each other and love each other. Do you need to walk across this room? Jesus is calling his people to be heralds of the gospel, but to do that, our hearts have to be right. Our hearts have to be right. And we either are going to have the spirit of Jonah in our church and in our hearts, or we're going to have the spirit of Jesus Christ. The spirit of Jonah says, I'm happy where I am. I don't want to go there. I don't want those kind of people to have grace. And, and I'd rather die than see them rescued. The Spirit of Jesus says, I'm leaving heaven to earth. I mean, you think the trip across the room is big. You think the trip to Nineveh is big. Try the trip from heaven to earth. Think about the trip that Christ made, that he came looking for the people. He was tracking them down to find the lost sheep. That's what all those parables are about, the the proactivity of the searcher looking for the lost coin and looking for the lost sheep and looking for the lost son. And and Jesus ultimately said kind of the opposite of Jonah. He said, I would rather die than not have them saved. And so he came to die for us. And so may the Lord give us a spirit of Christ, a room-crossing, continent-crossing universe crossing, grace and mercy.